0: Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Food with Mark Bittman. As usual, you can reach us at food at MarkBitman.com. We're happy to hear from you and we'll answer. Send us questions, answers, criticisms, congratulations, felicitations, joy, etc. Also, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and rate it wherever you do that. Also, you might also consider subscribing to our thrice weekly newsletter. The Bitman Project at bitmanproject.com. And for all things related to our work, you can find them at markbitman.com.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: Hi folks, we have a new sponsor and an interesting one. We all take about 20,000 breaths a day and Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors. That indoor air that we breathe can be up to a hundred times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And indoor air pollutants could cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So what's the solution? Introducing Air Doctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Air Doctor comes with a 30 day money back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code BITMAN. B-I-T-T-M-A-N, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to our listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code BITMAN. Kate is on vacation this week, and we're trying to actually let her take an actual vacation. So we thought it'd be fun to revisit our very first episode, almost two years ago now, of Food with Mark Bittman, which kicked the show off in a pretty great way, considering the universal appeal of our guest. And that guest was Nigella Lawson. It seems there's no one who doesn't know who she is. I wonder if anyone doesn't. And that's not exactly a rhetorical question, but um, there isn't even an about page about her on her website. I totally love that. I've known her for 20 years, maybe longer. We were co-columnists at the Times for a bit, and um, there are a few people who talk more articulately about home cooking than Nigella. When I originally interviewed her for this episode, she had a new book out called Cook, Eat, Repeat. We talked about that, of course, and we talked about what we ate like during early COVID. We were just barely a year in at that point. And we talked about the terms guilty pleasures and celebrity chef, both of which are pretty interesting. It's a conversation that remains relevant. We could easily have it today, and I'm happy to share it with you again or for the first time. Enjoy. Enjoy. I'm talking today with Nigella Lawson, who is the goddess of cooking and um, therefore needs no introduction. I will just say a couple of things about Nigella. She graduated from the University of Oxford. She's been a book reviewer and a restaurant critic, as well as one of the world's great cookbook authors. Her first book was How to Eat and was published in 1998. Um, and her second book was How to Be a Domestic Goddess, published in 2000. Um She's written others as well and done television and blah, 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 blah. Uh, Her latest book is called Cook, Eat, Repeat. We're going to talk about that and some other things. Hi, Nigella. Welcome.
3: Can I just say, of all the introductions I've ever had, I think blah, 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 blah is just (laughs) the most wonderful bit of it.
0: Well, when people say they need, (laughs) you know, so-and-so needs no introduction, I sometimes get that also deservedly or not but if they say so and so needs no introduction and then they read your official bio for 15 minutes <laughs> and, and it's stuff that you're not even doing anymore or maybe you were a little iffy about in the first place anyway whatever oh, um, i liked it did you write cook eat repeat during the pandemic
3: well i wrote it during the lockdown the bit we had a very Strongly enforced lockdown for about four months uh, from last month, end of last March. But believe it or not, the title is pre-pandemic. Hard to believe.
0: You know, people ask me this question and I find it actually interesting. Did you get sick of cooking during the pandemic? Have you gotten sick of cooking?
3: No, not at all. But of course, I wasn't cooking, you know, three meals a day for a family of four. I was by myself. And that makes a big difference because, well, not least because the amount of washing up,
1: you know, <laughs> right. and clearing up
3: is smaller. And I right. think that would have started weighing heavily. So it really was just me. I was retesting some recipes as and when I could get the ingredients. And you, you can never test or retest a recipe too many times, I feel. Right. So, but, but But I didn't get tired of it. Uh, when you when you have just yourself to please it's it's a much simpler proposition
0: right i'm a terrible recipe tester when i test recipes i can't help but change them every single time so that by the time i'm done it's not that i've really tested the original recipe i've made it into a different recipe and i i remember when i first started doing this 35 years ago when I started doing this, I became friendly, or I worshipped Jacques Pepin, and I met him. And he, you know, he's very articulate and, mm-hmm. and and wonderful in many ways. He said a recipe is like a river; you never do it the same way twice. And I thought, well, that doesn't bode very well for people who write recipes, since it means that whatever we're writing down is kind of a moment in time. But it is right.
3: Of course it is. It is a moment in time, but it has to stand up to countless other people cooking it that way in that first moment of time when they're just following the recipe. I mean, in a way, it's interesting that Jacques Papin says that because what is very true about restaurant chefs is, you know, despite their naturally perhaps unbridled creativity, they have to make Get their chefs who work for them in their in their restaurants do make it the same each time i would find that very very difficult but they have to because people go back for a particular dish they want it to be the same and of course at home you know you, it's not it's not quite the same thing and it's impossible to it's if you, if you cook a lot i think it's very difficult to stick to cooking the same way it's quite interesting because i i have occasionally sent food out whether it's generally people who who haven't been well then i feel i must stick to what i gave them last time if they've put in a request for anything right. and you know stick to it exactly right. and i i it, it's a such a struggle for me
0: i cook for my mother sometimes who's 95 and and will say things like this isn't how you do it this is wrong. <laughs> at the beginning <laughs> at the beginning of the pandemic, I ordered so much food. It was I mean everybody did, I'm sure, but um I'm just finishing some of it. But it is sort of that, well, I have this, I want to use it, I have that, I wanna use it, I have this, I wanna use it. Mm-hmm. What am I what can I do? Yeah, there's a lot of freedom in in not cooking for a specific reason, in not saying I have to test this mm-hmm. recipe or I'm I'm working mm. on squid, or I'm working on Soleriac or I'm yes. working on whatever. I'm just cooking. It's so nice. Having said that, there were times I really, I think for the first time in my life, I really got tired of cooking. Um, I really mm. felt like, I mean, I I I have a partner, so I cook for her. She cooks for me too, but mostly I cook for her and. Mm-hmm. we don't really cook breakfast but sometimes but often cook lunch and always dinner and after doing that for 100 days 200 days whatever really with almost no relief almost no relief that's just unprecedented no Mm -hmm. restaurants no friends inviting us over the take i live in a place where the takeout is just abysmal so every time you you do Mm -hmm. it you just wish you'd never done it and don't want to do it again I'm wondering if you got sick of cooking at any point.
3: Well, no. So the thing is, uh, for the first two weeks, I didn't want to eat a vegetable. In fact, I didn't want to eat meat or fish either. I really only wanted carbs. I felt very in need of a blanket at all times. I would have a baked potato with olive oil, really good olive oil and molden salt and pepper for lunch. I would, in the evening I'd have, you know, rice or pasta, and then afterwards I'd eat chocolate. And that was about <laughs> it. That was two weeks of that. Occasionally potato chips. I wonder
0: what that was about. If I, if,
3: I, if I, uh, Well, I think it was just a need for comfort and everything else felt almost too brutal. And then I recovered from that because there's only so much time you can eat like that. And I suppose I started using food much more to mark my days. So I get fish on Fridays and seafood that would last me through to Monday. And so I knew that was a weekend. And then often I would, I get vegetables at the same time. And then I'd move into a bit of, you know, vegetables and pasta or uh, that sort of thing. But um. Because I was retesting recipes, that gave me also um, the, a sort of framework and a structure. So I didn't get I didn't get tired. I strangely, I just didn't.
0: And you're still eager to cook more or less every day.
3: Well yes, but I always have because I've worked from home for since I was 27, which is you know over half a lifetime ago. And I don't go to restaurants a great deal normally. I mean, I mean, I like them, but I don't, I don't know, I don't go out yeah. you know, enormously. So I, I didn't get tired, but also, you don't actually need to cook all the time. I mean, bread and cheese is a wonderful meal. I'm so happy to eat things which don't, to my mind, involve a lot of cooking. I mean, for example, for lunch. So for lunch today, I just had, I made some noodles. I just tossed it in a small bit of oil with a bit of garlic and ginger. And then I put something called a peanut Rayu, or maybe you Rayu, which is like, you yeah. know, crisp, like yeah. that crispy oil, but yeah, crispy with peanuts oil. Yeah. and and some chopped cilantro, you know? So I don't really regard that as cooking, but it was a lovely lunch.
0: Right. I think that is, that's when you said the bread and cheese thing, that's kind of my answer. When people say I'm sick of cooking, what should I do? I say, don't. It's fine. Just don't cook. Yes, and, yes. Or I And you can have a bowl of rice with butter and salt and be really, really happy because you haven't had that for a while. Yes. And you could even skip meals. You know I mean? You could do what you want. We had ice cream for dinner a couple of times during the pandemic, and I had never done that. Or maybe I did it when I was a kid, but I'd never done it as an adult, mm. and- that was just like so much fun. It was really great.
3: Quite. That was really... Quite. I agree with you. <laughs> um,
0: I'm gonna I want to talk about guilty pleasures for a second because we're sort of on the same page about that. And I'm going to read mm. from your book. I'm gonna read to you from your book. I think that's kind of fun, right? No,
3: I'd love to hear it in your book. We're talking voice.
0: about guilty pleasures. I'm gonna skip around a little bit. If I could ban any phrase, it would without doubt be that overused viscerally irritating, and far from innocent term itself, the guilty pleasure. I don't think I actually groan out loud when I'm asked every time I'm interviewed, what are your guilty pleasures? But from deep within the cacophonous orchestra of my mind, the woodwind section starts up a searing wail, the cellos come in with their melancholy sob, only giving way to the brass section to end with the wah, 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 wah of the sad trombone. I may be smiling, but I am keening on the inside. My answer to that question is always the same, and while I worry that I repeat it so often it might be beginning to sound glib, I have to say that I feel it profoundly, and it is this. No one should feel guilty about what they eat or the pleasure they get from eating. The only thing to feel guilty about, and even then I don't recommend it, is the failure to be grateful for that privilege. I am very aware that the joy I celebrate in food is a privilege. I love that.
3: (laughs) Um, Well, it is. Well, it is, though. And I also feel, I think someone once said to me when I was talking excitedly about something I'd eaten, um, oh, well, you know, there are lots of, you know, there are many people you know, who don't have enough food to eat and I'm, like, I'm aware of that but you think it honours them to be ungrateful for what you eat. It doesn't, you know, I think that you know, I'm not saying that gratitude is enough, it doesn't preclude one's doing other things to try and, um, you know, make things better as much as one can in one's own way but I, I'm, I, I think it's very, very important that you that we realize how lucky we are to have food on the table and to enjoy it and i think that i've always been a bit like that but maybe i think we're probably around the same age i don't know but i think that i you know you get to a stage when you've eaten more meals than you're going to eat and there is sorry sorry uh, <laughs> and you you know that i i I kind of feel you have to make the most of everyone.
0: I mean, I've thought about that you should appreciate food and and blah, 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 but I hadn't thought about the phrase guilty pleasure. And um, I teach at Columbia Public Health School. And like the fact that you could say, I'm eating junk food. I'm going to McDonald's. It's one of my guilty pleasures. And not acknowledge that it is in fact a privilege to go eat wherever you want, whenever you want.
3: Yes, and I but I think that I would think the reason why you probably hadn't thought about it a great deal is that it's a question that women are asked more often than men because women's intake is policed more than men's, and guilty pleasures right. to a woman normally has the subtext, "You should be on a diet." Um, but what I would say is that, on top of that, I think a lot of snobbery, and sort of class consciousness comes into this discussion of guilty pleasures as well because it is often people who want to deflect attention away from sometimes from a foodstuff they feel hasn't got you know chic status uh so it's it's a, it's 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 whether it's about Eating food that you feel you shouldn't in inverted commas or eating food that you feel may not reflect right. upon Believe me, you it in a very good here way. Too. Yeah. It's a nervous distancing uh, act, if you like. But uh, I mean this happens everywhere. Perhaps I, I'm more aware of it, you know, here in England because I live here and because it's obviously a very common subject, but this this an attempt to place you through the food you eat or don't eat. Um in a class way. Yeah. And and it's it's sort of preposterous. And it also really ignores um, the fact that one's likes and dislikes um, are pretty heterogeneous, if you like, you know, and they don't bundle up nicely. I remember when my children were very little, when how's Wheat came out, um, I was giving a talk at a lovely little bookstore here called Books for Cooks. And someone said, and I'd done a recipe for mou mariniere, which at that time my daughter was pretty little and she loved it. And they said, oh, but, you know, be, um, you know, oh, come on, be honest. Uh, you, you know, you you say your kids like this, but what, you know, don't they eat? Don't they you go to McDonald's? Don't they want chicken nuggets? And I went children are honest they don't think because i like muscles i therefore cannot like chicken nuggets <laughs> right. they like what they like, they like both. they're not working that out <laughs> and and i feel that in a way why should we do that it's you know we take your appetite for certain foods depends on many things how much you know what mood you're in what the weather's like what what emotional resonance certain dishes have. And obviously beyond that, you eat according to your budget as well. So, and I, by budget, I don't just mean money. I also mean time. I always say to people, there are two ingredients, essential ingredients in cooking, money and time. If you don't have much of the former, you need more of the latter. That's brilliant. When you're using expensive ingredients, you can cook fast. Yeah.
0: That's really, that's really brilliant. That's really smart. Hi folks, we have a new sponsor and an interesting one. We all take about 20,000 breaths a day and Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors. That indoor air that we breathe can be up to a hundred times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So what's the solution? Introducing Air Doctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. AirDoctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Head to AirDoctorPro.com and use promo code Bitman. B-I-T-T-M-A-N, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to our listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code BITMAN. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. One thing I think we have in common is that we are often... Uh, or at least sometimes mislabeled celebrity chefs. And there's an interview in The Guardian in which you say, when people call me a celebrity chef, I just feel like I'm going to commit suicide, which... um,
3: I don't... don't, Did I say that?
0: I found it. But, you know, it's okay. It was long ago... And we know yeah. you're not allowed to make jokes about that anymore. And
3: yeah, well, I certainly, you know, want to, you know, stab myself in the eye with a bus Well, there you go. I, I know what people mean, but, you know, I, I, both words are, are difficult and in conjunction, they're pretty cringe making. I
0: agree. Um, but, you know, Celebrity, okay, you, you can say, well, that, that could be in the eye of beholder. But chef, I always say, a chef yeah. runs a restaurant, and I've never run a restaurant in my life. Yeah. I,
3: no, quite. I mean, quite. is a completely different idea. But the point is, I think people don't always understand that, and they mean it as praise, so it doesn't do to sound too churlish. Well, good point. Despite what I said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think if people say, I just feel... I th- I, you know, I don't think it's the case. And I also feel that it makes me really worried in case it looks like I'm claiming an expertise I don't have. I'm not even a cook. I'm a food writer, essentially.
0: Yeah, I don't. I,
3: I, you know, I, don't, I cook at home. And I cook and I've been alive a long time and been cooking for most of my life, certainly since I was a you know, fairly small child. So I'm experienced as a cook, but I don't. Anyone who sees me on television knows I don't have any knife skills, and there are things I don't know. I just cook because I cook.
0: This is—I'm um, actually on the on the verge of writing a piece about why knife skills don't matter, and I, and I realize that in part of it, it's defensive because I'm so embarrassed about that. Yeah. So people used to do when I used to do videos, people would say, "Show us how to chop an onion." I'm like, "You don't want to see me chop an onion. It's not a pretty no, sight." Oh,
3: no. <laughs> When, my, when I'm chopping, um, when I'm chopping for my television programme, and my director Dominic Syriax more or less has to put a hand over his eyes as he's checking the monitor. <laughs> he so because I he can't bear it the way he, when he sees that. And of course, because we film in a particular way for the chopping part, it's about the fifth time I've done it. But at once, when I've got the camera just on my hands, it makes me so panicked that I can barely hold a knife, let alone chop. Yeah,
0: I won't do it. I, I won't let anyone film me actually
3: people. But I think it's quite good for people to see that because, you know how I think of it as like in the olden days, people would get, you know, chefs, these portly gentlemen would go on, you know, TV and they, you know, some breakfast show and they go, will you first chop that? And it would be this virtuoso so the knife. You know that you know suddenly a radish looks like a chrysanthemum <laughs> and so forth but the point is when you're if you're cooking in a restaurant if you're two minutes slower on each carrot that that, that night's service is not going to work but i mean when you're just chopping one or two carrots for your family for for a meat sauce for your family that it's immaterial, so I think it's quite good. This is my no, no, that's great. Um, making, uh, making a virtue out of necessity. It's good for people to see bad chopping.
0: <laughs> um, that's why I wanted to write this piece. And it's exactly true yeah. that if you're cooking one dish for two people or four people, the amount of time it takes you to mangle an onion is irrelevant. It just doesn't matter. There was a funny thing that happened recently, which this kid... This no longer kid this young man who's been working for me for since he was in college was chopping an onion somewhere on set and i said that is amazing how you do that how did you learn how to do that and he said i learned how to do it from you and i was like i guess i just haven't (laughs) learned how to do it from me so that was pretty funny
3: yes i know but some people are better with their hands i'm not you know i'm quite clumsy um, and you know, if I—I I mean, I knock things over nonstop when I cook. Right. But they are—I don't know that it particularly matters.
0: Yeah, I don't think it. Well, it's nice not to knock things over, but yes, I'm not nimble either. You cook with a bunch of ingredients evangelized mm-hmm. for a little bit that here, at least, they're not super popular: rhubarb, anchovies celeriac. I'm not saying I don't like these things. I love them, but
3: yeah, yeah, they're not enormously popular, no, which not. is why I wanted. No, but that's why I wanted to write about them. I mean, a lot of people in this country too have a real horror of rhubarb, but, um, but but in this country it's normally because we we were scarred in our childhoods because it would be you know that very hardy rhubarb that then when you cook it is a khaki fibrous much whereas although you don't have the yorkshire forced rhubarb that we have which is grown by candlelight um inside is it true i
0: have to read i'll yeah. have to read about Populated that yeah. by candlelight
3: yeah. yes harvested by candlelight and it's grown inside and it's very tender and absurdly pink but but you have hothouse rhubarb and it's uh, certainly at the beginning of the summer rhubarb it's before it gets very tough yeah. it's so it is so wonderful and i i i like i think the thing about rhubarb which is so fascinating is it's that tang it has that it's not sweet and yes you do need to use a lot of sugar to balance it but i think it's that sourness that that particularly perfumed sourness it has once once you taste it properly it it becomes very beguiling and of course i find it rhubarb was a very interesting in savory uh dishes and i and i and that's wonderful too I, i think sourness is is can enliven many things, you know. The same as we know when you just spritz some lime or, or lemon. I think rhubarb has that. It sort of wakes you up. And I, uh, I feel that, um, the recipes I've given in the book very much are very much there to to to, sh- to show it in both ways, sweet and savoury, which I adore. But anchovies, again, they're they're a divisive ingredient um and i think that for many people it's very irritating to say to them like you've never had a proper anchovy." but for many people they haven't because they've had not very good yeah, anchovies yeah. have curled up and died on top of their you know pizza but that i that i think that i've cooked anchovies in dishes that people who claim not to like anchovies have never noticed because really i think people just think salt whereas of course what they add is such wonderful depth. But if you like salt, as I do, um, and, you know, I'm happy with just bread, butter, and yeah, anchovies. Yeah, well, that,
0: I think, is the highest um, and best use of anchovies. So, uh. Uh,
3: so, and also, I there's a wonderful, which I didn't write about because I hadn't had it then, but there's a wonderful, I think it's Spanish, is it called, I mean, I probably... I I, Don't might, I might use the Italian word, but I'm saying matrimonio, which is a fresh marinated anchovy lying next to, I married, to an anchovy salted and cured anchovy fillet on. I had it with bread and garlic and lemon zest and a bit of parsley. It's extraordinary how good it is.
0: That sounds great. Wonderful. And, um, it is. Just back to rhubarb for one second the recipe i f- found really appealing was the rhubarb and beef stew can you talk about that for
3: yes so i i based that really on a koresh you know which i think is an, like, an iranian stew that is generally cooked with very little liquid um often water uh and i used i can't remember what i ended up using in the book but i I tend to use a beef cheek or something because if I'm making two portions for myself, a beef cheek is about a pound of meat and that will do two portions. And so it's kind of a very spiced beef stew. And when you're nearly ready to serve it, you fry a bit bit of pink and tender. You wouldn't want the very tough rhubarb, fry a little in a bit of butter, add a bit of lemon juice, teeny bit of sugar if you want. I mean, it depends when in the season the rhubarb's been picked. And then add that to the stew. And the stew is quite, mine is, has a bit more liquid than a proper koresh would be. So my beef stew is very rich and spiced. And then there are those sudden nuggets. Right of smooth sharpness and when i made this the last time when i was you know attempting to write down everything and measurements and timings and because i wanted to have a a go again it struck me that it's very similar and it makes sense within this recipe to that particular perfume soundness you get from a preserved lemon and, the, and the, i think that many recipes in rhubarb season many recipes that call for a preserved lemon as long as you don't put it in right at the beginning you because you it would just disappear into the sauce right. if you did the same thing and quickly sauteed or slightly steamed in a pan with a bit of fat some rhubarb and stirred it in it would give you exactly that same wonderful intense and yet some tartness.
0: And then finally, celeriac.
3: Celeriac I adore. And I think it's such an interesting vegetable, um, not least because it's so very, I mean, like many vegetables, I suppose, but it's so very different raw and cooked.
0: I think that for the first 20 years I ate it, I only ate it raw. I mean, it was always yes. like, oh, well, I have a celeriac. I'll make celeriac remoulade which, of course, is fabulous. We have a lot of celeriacs because they last forever. So um, Yes,
3: they do. But I
0: went to Denmark probably 20 years ago, and um, this friend of mine roasted celeriac with olive oil without even peeling it. You have a similar recipe in here, which is why I'm... Mm. Yes, it was from...
3: uh, I first had it in a a Yosemotelingi restaurant.
0: And it's just an amazing thing you just roast it like a Isn't
3: it? with olive oil salt and pepper and it's just a fantastic thing so i know it's it's wonderful it's like a creamy savory cake
0: yeah yeah that's really yeah that's a good thing okay well i'm not asking you any okay. favorite questions so you can thank me for that now and um
3: i thank you anyway <laughs> I, this is nice. It's been
0: really fun.
3: Okay, Mr. Bittman, that was lovely. Well,
0: thank you, Ms. Lawson, and uh, I'll <laughs> see you sometime. Take care. One of the great things about spring is that we're starting to see herbs. My sage is up. My thyme is up. I've planted some parsley, some cilantro. Basil, of course, but that'll be later. The chives are up. So just use them or lose them. I mean, the best thing you can do is make a salad and throw a variety of herbs in there. Or or grill something with uh, herbed olive oil or herb butter. They're out there in huge quantities. It's time to use them. Spring is really the time for herbs, and there's nothing better than a mixed herb omelet. So just here's a simple one. Beat four eggs. You can add a couple tablespoons of milk or cream if you like. Add some salt and pepper and then a mixture of herbs parsley, mint, a little tarragon, thyme, chervil if you can lay your hands on it, maybe a tiny bit of chopped sage, that kind of thing. Put a nonstick pan or a well seasoned cast iron skillet over medium low heat. Add a lump of butter and when that melts, add the egg mixture. There are various ways of making omelets. You probably have your favorite. The simplest is to just turn the heat down low and cook it undisturbed until the eggs are mostly set, but a little bit runny, and then fold it in half and slide it from the pan onto a plate. Top it with more chopped herbs. That is spring personified. Okay, now's when we're going to answer a few questions from listeners.
1: Hey, Mark, um, I was curious if you had a thought if there was a specific number that would be too many toppings for a standard pizza, or to say it another way, um, how many toppings is appropriate for a pie? Um, And does that vary between a red pie and a white pie?
0: For the answer to this question, I'm bringing in one of my pizza gurus, Daniel Meyer. Daniel,
1: the short answer is is no. It's less about the number of toppings right than it is about the total weight of them. Right? So like in general, you don't want to pile too many ingredients on top of your your crust. I think that that's that's what he's getting at and I think that's the general rule, right? That's going to make things soggy and heavy, right? And you run the risk of the crust starting to steam in the oven instead of baking up sort of light and airy and um and crisp right so 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 there's some gen- there's some gentleness involved in 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 the pizza making at home and some restraint for sure right like spending time building up this dough and making these lovely air bubbles um and that's precious that's precious cargo for a for a cook so you want to be gentle with those um right for the same reason that you don't roll out pizza dough with a rolling pin you also don't want to crush it under two pounds of pepperoni and and cheese
0: the question of red versus white does the sauce make the dough wetter and therefore less able to carry more stuff?
1: Yeah, you want to treat red and white pies similarly, but tomato sauce is your, you know, tomato sauce is your base topping. So you want to put, um, you know, only a few things or, you know, many ingredients, but not too many of them um, on top of that. And white pie is, you know, it's truly a truly a blank slate. So maybe you have a little more latitude there.
0: I guess the important point there is that the sauce counts as a topping.
1: If the dough is your thing, right? If that's kind of like your that's kind of your leading your leading lady in your pizza, then um, you know you wanna you wanna honor it. You wanna you wanna give it some love, and you don't wanna drown it out with. Um,
0: I mean, I I think it is important to remember that they are toppings. They're not, you know, the, the crust as you say is the star of the show, and and um, everything else is accentual flavorings. It's not a meal on top of a piece of. Though it's a fabulous kind of bread that's enhanced by the flavorings you put on top of it. Next we have a call from Phil who says he's cooked my banana bread recipe from How to Cook Everything, which is actually a recipe given to me by my late friend Sherry Slade. Hi there, Sherry, wherever you are. He says he's cooked it more than any other recipe in his life. My question is this Uh, I now have three children, two of which are vegetarian.
1: And we cook a lot of tofu and we cook a lot of beans and i'm wondering what recipes you might have to suggest to me for vegetarian cooking that is still high protein good flavor and good vegetables and i really appreciate your time good job
0: kerry conan and i have worked together we met in 1990 so we've known each other 30 years i think we've worked together 20 um carrie has been my co-author on on many books for 20 years now and um knows as much about cooking as i do she probably knows more so when we have general questions carrie and i are gonna tackle them together
2: um oh wow sounds like phil is really tired of beans and tofu um (laughs) so uh let's see if we can help him out here
0: i mean high protein good flavor good i mean Look, beans are the most important source of protein in the world. So if you're going to be a vegetarian, you're going to eat beans. It's you know.
2: But can we debunk this protein myth just a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I know yeah, of he course. has he has kids. Um and I think people think, you know, they go they they want meat substitutes and that's not necessarily necessary. We've discovered, right? Right.
0: I mean, everything has protein. Lettuce has protein. Um by I mean I think by weight spinach has more protein than meat I can't remember but yeah, there are I, I statistics like one of that those, yeah. right <laughs> um so it's and and Americans get first of all the recommended daily allowance was already set at twice what you really needed right. and then we get most of us get twice that there's like no protein deficiency in this country hardly at all um certainly right. not among our listeners uh so What are we doing we're just saying don't worry about the protein thing cook what you like
2: cook what you like i think we're saying i think we're saying that and there are ways to um make easy substitutes uh if you know if phil feels like having you know something meaty and the kids don't you know have a roast chicken handy in the in the refrigerator for for you to you know supplement your own diet right um uh but in terms of um in terms of the kids, you know, let's let's think of beans in stir fries for starters. Right. Instead of um, you know, and then then you just get. I mean, you can use any recipe and right. just substitute the beans.
0: I mean, the other thing is that what else Phil doesn't mention grains at all, and you right. know, if you cook barley or you cook wheat berries or you cook even even uh, bulgur, right. In sauces, in stir fries, etc., cetera. It, they're really good mimics of of ground beef. and um, Right, that's and, a good point. Yeah, and they're great for you. So, um, you know, again, it's stir fries and stews and sauteed stuff.
2: They should always be whole grains. Try to steer the kids toward whole grain bread. You know, cook brown rice instead of white rice um, because you do get more protein and nutrients than with
3: white. Right.
0: I mean, wheat Uh, berries, farro berries. I mean, those are sorghum, which you turned me on to recently. Those are like, they are awesome grains and so chewy and, you know, again, meat-like. You know, the first time I tried so-called fake meat, I thought um, in a taco or something. I thought, oh, well someone's put some wheat berries in this taco. <laughs> That's what, oh. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's like little yeah. <laughs> little crunchy chewy things, you know. Anyway, speaking and what about of
2: good vegetables. I
0: mean, oh, what, go ahead. what what is good vegetables? It's spring, yeah. it's summer. I mean, there's good vegetables everywhere. I'm cooking some Kale leaves and flowers from kale that went to flower early in the season because it was in a greenhouse. I'm cooking that even as we speak. So delicious. I mean.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, really great.
0: Why don't we move on since we have a whole grain segue?
2: Yeah.
0: Why don't we move on to this question from Winnie?
1: Hey, Mark. My name is Winnie Lingovic, a huge fan, and we are looking forward to buying your new Bread book, my wife just started making bread in the Dutch oven. It's kind of like this no need bread thing, and it's been coming out fabulous. My question to you is, how can we make no
0: need bread healthier? Yay, Winnie! So, um, well, we have the answer, but we're not going to talk through the book right here, right? Oh, I know we can't. <laughs> I think what we can say uh, is that we have a. We have a method for making hundred percent whole grain bread really easily, reliably, deliciously, blah, 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 blah. But the book's coming out in November, so hang on.
2: Yeah, and you do need a sourdough. But in the meantime, you know, she she does mention Mark's no-need bread. Um, and we didn't we discover you can do up to 50%. Um, you'll, you know, you'll notice the crumb will be a little bit uh, tighter and the doming might not be so much, but you can use up to fifty percent substitution whole wheat flour in that recipe, and just add water a tablespoon at a time, as you know, as you're mixing, because it's going to take a little bit more water. Right.
0: I mean, I would say thirty percent is a sort of no brainer, and 50 percent is is kind of pushing. I remember, we had that discussion with Doctor Ross, who said, "Oh, right, thirty percent of anything." But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the I mean, we did that. And in fact, after I wrote the no need bread thing, I went back and talked to Jim Leahy. So this is ten years ago or more. And I said, We, you know, we have to I mean, this is interesting in a way. I said, We have to be able to get more whole grains into this. I mean, a hundred percent white flour bread is just it's not good stuff. It's not good for you. It really doesn't taste that great when you get into whole grains and so on. And Jim and I started messing around and you and I started messing around with that. whole grain and so on. And that's what led us to, when I say us, you and me, led us to um, starting to say, how do we make this, you know, how do we make 100% whole grain bread as easy as no-need bread? And we've kind of done that, but it's six Mm. months away. The, The big reveal is six months away. That's it for this week's listener questions. If you have a question about food, cooking, or whatever, it does not have to be a cooking question, any question about food, call our listener question line, it's toll free, as if you're paying for phone calls, at 833-FOOD-POD, or to put it another way, 833 663763. That'll get you to our listener hotline. Leave your question, and uh, we may get back to you. We may just answer it on the air. Thank you for that. We've talked and heard a lot about the movie Sea Spiracy recently. Um, I have feelings about that, as will become clear. But next week, we have two ocean experts appearing on the show. Ted Danson, yes, that Ted Danson, who is so much fun and Dr. Daniel Pauly, who is one of the world's great experts on the health of fish in the oceans. Uh, Many people are concerned about fish, rightly so. It comes as a surprise to most people that the United States actually does a better job of fisheries management than most countries do. I think if there's one easy argument for having global agencies that control different aspects of especially the environment, but trade and climate change and so on, it is the state of the world's ocean. So that's something we'll get into next week. I hope you enjoyed this show. It was really fun for me. I'm looking forward to many, many more. And um, as I said at the opener, we have great guests lined up. We have a lot of ideas we have not yet introduced I want to thank the great and wonderful and really, really fun Nigella Lawson for giving us her time and coming on the show. That was a treat for me. You can order her book, Cook, Eat, Repeat, on bookshop.org. You can also find it on our website, which will steer you to bookshop.org, where the book will come to you from your local bookseller, or of course, from Amazon or anywhere else. You can also follow her on Twitter, at Nigella underscore Lawson, or her website is Nigella.com. Check out that book, though. It's really beautiful and quite useful. Folks, if you liked today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple, and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at bitmanproject.com or at markbitman.com. They all kind of go to the same place. Finally, Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food. See you next week.